0: Father, we thank you for the way that uh, through centuries and millennia that you have sustained your people um, through persecution and affliction. We pray that as we uh, read about such uh, this morning, uh, that you would also give us courage and that you would also uh, encourage us to be in prayer for uh, others, other believers around the world who suffer for your name. Uh, Thank you for uh, gathering us for the study. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, we are in First Thessalonians, and we will finish up Chapter 2, which I was just saying I meant to finish last week, but I'm constantly running behind. So if you're wondering how long the class will go, um, we will end sometime between the end of November and the first of the year. Uh, partly that depends on when the teacher of the next class is ready, so um, I can either stretch it out or tighten it up, depending on... Um, the needs of the next teacher, so we'll be in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians for a little while, and hopefully that's not a bad thing. If you don't like the teacher, at least realize we are studying the Word of God, so that's always good. 1st Thessalonians, uh, we're in chapter 2, and let's begin by reading from chapter 2 and verse 17 uh, through the end of chapter 3, which is a short chapter. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? With all his saints. And so we see Paul here continuing to express his uh, love uh, for the believers at Thessalonica. And just to kind of recapitulate what we've been saying, his departure from Thessalonica was sudden. Um, Paul's opponents had been saying, well, he got what he could out of you and he left. And so Paul was, in these first three chapters, is insisting upon his continued love for the believers there. I I really enjoy reading this and am reminded in studying this that Paul's activity was more like um, our missionaries that are hard at work in the field than it is like um, the kinds of mass evangelism that we sometimes associate with lots of conversions today. And I don't mean to be critical of mass evangelism because maybe some of us in this room were converted um, at a Billy Graham crusade or some such thing. So God accomplishes his purposes through mass evangelism. But when you have an evangelist come into an area and preach and leave, um, the people are lost to him. He probably never even knew the people that he preached to um whereas with the kind of evangelism that Paul is doing in his missionary journeys and the kind of work that our missionaries do and the missionaries of other denominations and groups uh, do in our day they're actually uh uh locating themselves in an area getting to know the people sharing the gospel and indeed sharing their lives with those people and so when uh when people are saved, when babies are baptized, when families are growing uh, through the work of the church, you actually have relationships develop. And so when missionary and uh, congregation or missionary and mission field experience some sort of parting, there's a pain there because there are real relationships that end up having to be broken. And so uh, that is similar to what Paul is talking about here. But it's not just in the missionary context that I think we should think about this kind of love between uh, Christians and those with whom the gospel is being shared. Um, Sometimes um, types of uh, witnessing and evangelism are emphasized that really depersonalize relationships. Um, I remember a couple of decades ago, um, a book was written and a program started getting rolled out across the country known as Friendship Evangelism. And when I first heard about this, this seemed actually to me like a good idea because in, in the uh, churches I grew up in, there was a lot of emphasis on uh, what we call door-to-door evangelism. So you'd just go through neighborhoods and knocking on doors and inviting people to church and and uh, a lot of times, it's I think it's gotten more so um, now than it was then. But you know, people didn't necessarily want strangers knocking on their doors. You know, you're probably some telemarketer selling something, and so it was kind of impersonal. And so I started hearing about friendship evangelism, and that sounded like oh, that that's a that's a better idea that you're actually developing relationships. And so the idea was well, if you like to bowl. Join a bowling league where you'll go meet a bunch of non-Christians. And when you join the bowling league and you meet a non-Christian, you uh, invite him to coffee or something, you get to know him, you share the gospel, he becomes a Christian, and then you get him in a church, and then you leave him behind and you go find another friend. (laughs) Well, that's not really friendship, is it? Um, I think there is something to be said for friendship evangelism, but it's, uh, through intentionally making friends through in, in our neighborhood in our uh, work um, um, in, in with our hobbies, but making real friends, not trying to manipulate relationships so that we get a, a chance to share the gospel, but actually getting to know uh, people that uh, we rub elbows with and then sharing the gospel with them um, something that um, I've read recently that is much more in, intriguing to me, although I don't know that I have the personality or the household that, that's able to accomplish all that she has. But, uh, if you know, the name Rosaria, um, uh, Butterfield, um, she has written, um, a book recently on, um, Christian hospitality and basically her home has become a neighborhood center. Um, where people are constant, kids are in, are in, are welcome. Uh, they have uh, frequent, maybe weekly gatherings, cookouts, all kinds of things. She invites women from the neighborhood over to to chat, and and it's really uh, an interesting ministry. Um, just out of her house, um, she thinks every Christian can be uh, can have a hospitality ministry like she does. I'm not sure that that's true. I'm much too introverted for that myself, but the, the reality is that all of us um, can do something. But nonetheless, all of this is to say that Paul had established real relationships with the people um, that he ministered among. Isn't it uh, amazing that when he wrote these letters, how frequently he calls to mind the names of particular people? Uh, that he administered with and, and says, you know, hey, so, say hello to uh, this guy. Uh, say say hi to them. Um, because these were real relationships and because out of those relationships, these names are recorded in Scripture. Um, people that, that otherwise we would not uh, know anything about. The situation echoes of Satan in the garden, though. The whole, did he really say, did he really say, I mean, here, Paul's left and they're saying, yeah, but look, he left you. Mm-hmm. I mean, And that's exactly right, and that may be part of the context out of which he says Satan hindered us, because the persecutors really are uh, behaving uh, like Satan, questioning uh, the authenticity of God's messenger. So in chapter 2, looking back at the end of chapter 2, we see Paul stating his desire to return. Um, He had left suddenly, he had not come back. Again, this seems to have been some of the criticism um, pointed toward him by his opponents and by the gospel's opponents. If Paul really cares about you, then why hasn't he returned? And he he does say here that it was Satan that had hindered us, but he, um, he emphasizes that he had made attempts. Um, to come back. And the language here is very strong. Notice that he says, but since we were torn away from you, this may be, and I'm hedging a little bit, but this may be the third reference in just a short period of writing um, that Paul makes uh, of a familial nature, a family nature, uh, to his relationship with the Thessalonians. So if you look back at chapter 2 and verse 7 Paul writes, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So um, it's interesting how Paul is mixing his uh, family metaphors here. But he says, I was like a, a mother among you. I was like a father among you. And then in, in chapter 2 and verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, um, the word there might mean nothing more than torn away. But the, the root idea of that word is the idea of being orphaned. Uh, and so, uh, but since we were orphaned from you. Um, and so uh, Paul extends it further. He's compared the relationship to father, to mother, and now to orphan. Uh, to child, um, that is, um, you know, all of these expressing the loving relationship that existed between missionary and mission, between uh, pastor and people, between uh, these young Christians and the apostle. It's also interesting here that in other uh, letters, Paul uh, will refer to himself insistently as an apostle his apostolic authority being questioned for example in Galatians but here in this passage as we've seen elsewhere in the in the letter he refers to uh, his his readers as brothers and so emphasizing um, that um, he's not lording himself over them in any way although he certainly could have as an apostle uh, lording over them in a proper sense but rather he's speaking of them as brothers speaking Of a close uh, family connection between um, the apostle between the uh, missionary and those that had been converted and so there's this longing um, to see them again and then he closes this chapter in this brief section with um, a reference to the return of Christ so not only is he wanting to return but he speaks of uh, the connection between himself and the Thessalonians as being an eternal one that ultimately will be bound together when Christ returns. So in verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul here uses for the first time in his writings a word that will appear later, the word that's translated coming. Coming. Um, the idea behind, in that word coming, and it, again, words have multiple meanings. And so it could just be a general term that means coming. But um, the way that Paul uses it here and then in chapter um, 4 and verse 13, where he, um, 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 I lost my place. Oh, in verse fifteen, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the word "coming" there um, has the idea of a royal coming, or, or um, uh, uh, the coming, the coming of a dignitary uh, to a city with a lot of pomp and circumstance, and so that that's uh, the. That's a the common usage um, of this uh, term. And so Paul here is saying, for what is our hope or joy or crowd of boasting before our Lord at his regal coming? Is it not you for you are our glory and joy? And it's as though Paul is saying here, you are the victory wreath that I will present to this dignitary uh, when he comes. And so this again, speaks of the close connection between Paul and the people that he administered among. And it speaks of their relationship not only as meaningful in the present day, not only as meaningful in time, but as meaningful eternally. Because as missionary and people, we are eternally joined together. Um, there will be um, a victory celebration uh, when Christ returns. And and I present you to him as part of his victory wreath um, upon his coming. And so Paul has spoken of his past relationship. He's spoken of his present desire to return. But he also emphasizes our connection with one another is an, an eternal one. And that's a lot of friendship. <laughs> it's not... Um, you know, loving you and leaving you, it's, um, we are bonded in this relationship and it's in time, and even though I've had to leave, it's in time, but it's also an eternal relationship that we will share together. And So that gets us to the end of chapter 2. Comments, questions, thoughts? Well, you don't look like you're sleeping, so we will continue to chapter three, and chapter three gives us the actual occasion on, for which, uh, or upon which, um, he wrote this letter. And so, if somebody asks, "Well, why did Paul write this?" It's because he had sent Timothy back to them, and Timothy had returned with a good report, and so that um, results in this expression of joy that Paul has for what has happened. So. The decision to send Timothy um, was a painful one. Look at at verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Notice the emphasis there that Paul has that sending Timothy was a sacrifice it cost him something we had to be left at athens alone and athens as we know from reading in Acts 17 was a tough place Um, and as we would know otherwise it was uh, filled with pagans paul was on the areopagus uh, attempting to share the gospel Um, some believed but there was a lot of mockery athens was a tough place Um, Here we have a reminder of one of the reasons that God joins us um, together as a church in a world that is hostile to our faith. It's not a good thing for us to be alone. We need the fellowship, the encouragement of other believers. But Paul was in Athens in a difficult ministry place, and he was so deeply concerned about the plight, about the state of the Thessalonians that he was willing to be left alone in order to send Timothy back. Now, when we compare this to Acts 16 and 17, um, the the, um, chronology is a little bit complicated, but we can pull it all together. So Paul had been in Thessalonica, had gotten run out of town, and then he went to Berea, and the Bereans uh, were better uh, students than some of the folks in Thessalonica and so they had some conversions there the starting up of a church but then enemies came from Thessalonica and got Paul run out of Berea when Paul got ran got run out of Berea he left Silas and Timothy behind and so they continued to minister um, in Berea for a period of time Paul went on to Athens so Timothy and Silas rejoined Paul in Athens, and in Acts we don't hear of um, of Timothy going back to Thessalonica another time. And so some people might might ask, was well, that a contradiction? No, it's just that the different writers had different purposes. The um, it wasn't within Luke's um, purposes to talk about every. Um, every detour that happened along the way. And so he doesn't mention Timothy going back, but, but Paul here tells us of it in, in 1 Thessalonians. So Paul sent Timothy back. We're not really certain whether Silas, we lose track of Silas here, so we're not sure where Silas was, whether he remained with Paul or if, whether he had stayed behind. We, we just don't know. So Timothy goes back to Thessalonica, Paul proceeds on to Corinth, and then Timothy rejoins Paul in Corinth and brings this report that we're reading about. So is all that as clear as mud? At least? Okay. So when when you nod, I don't know if that's a good thing. Yes, it's clear as mud. Okay. So anyway, um, so that's kind of the chronology putting um, Acts... And 1 Thessalonians together. So when Paul sends Timothy, he gave him a twofold mission. He gave him two things to do. Um, the first is mentioned in verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to accept, to establish and exhort you in your faith. And so they needed encouragement, they needed further teaching. And so Timothy was sent to do that. And then in verse five, we have the second purpose of Timothy's mission. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And so Timothy went to teach them and encourage them and also for the purpose of bringing a report back to Paul in terms of how they were doing. So it was a a twofold purpose. And so Timothy went, and then beginning with verse 6, we see that Timothy's report back was very positive. They were continuing in the gospel, they were continuing um, in faith in Christ, and they thought kindly about Paul. The opponent's um, ideas and um, uh, words against Paul were not having effect, and so they remained uh, loving toward Paul and faithful uh, toward Christ. But in the meantime, uh, along with his description of uh, sending Timothy, we have these words about the promise that, um, that they would suffer uh, for the cause of Christ. So let's look back at that again, uh, beginning with verse two. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And so from very early on, was it even before the persecutions started? I think probably so. From very early on, this group of believers was told, if you come to faith in Christ you're going to suffer. It's part of it. Now, some of this would have come out of Paul's own experience. Since his conversion, every place he had gone, he had faced severe opposition. He had gotten beaten up. He had gotten stoned. He had gotten left for dead. He had gotten thrown in prison. Um, I think somebody has said before, we may have mentioned it a few weeks ago, that um if a if a church were looking for a minister and they got Paul's resume, it would have looked very rather interesting. Never stayed very long because I got thrown out and thrown into jail multiple times and got beaten up, saw riots. Um, not your typical, you know, we had this success and, you know. Um, so Paul, Paul had had a rough way to go. So out of his own experience, I mean, immediately before... Thessalonica, he had come from Philippi, where he got uh, got flog- uh, flogged and thrown into to jail. So, um, you know, he... Um, sometimes people get the impression, if I come to faith in Christ, everything's smooth sailing from there, right? Well, it wasn't that way for Paul. He actually had it pretty good when he was a Pharisee and had it much worse... Um, Humanly speaking, uh, or narrowly speaking, had it much worse after coming to faith in Christ. But as he says in Philippians chapter 3, um, the things that he gave up he counted as dumb uh, that he might win Christ. And so, um, and so he, he had suffered greatly and yet uh, was thankful that he had uh, come to faith in Christ. But the Thessalonians were promised that they would suffer affliction, maybe partly out of Paul's own experience. But isn't this largely over the millennia, the, the experience of God's people generally? I and mean, we can go back to the Old Testament, uh, the prophets that were faithful to God and so forth, they suffered. Uh, we go to the New Testament witness. Of course, Christ himself was crucified uh, nearly all of the apostles died a martyr's death. Maybe everyone except John the apostle. And John didn't die a martyr's death, but we find him suffering intensely on the Isle of Patmos when he was writing the book of Revelation. So um, he also suffered intently as a martyr. So all of the apostles, we read of martyrdoms in the book of Acts itself, Stephen, um, the first deacon, and, um, and others, James, um, the early leader of the church, and so forth. And so we find um, all of this in the New Testament. And then how about more recently? If you study Presbyterian history, um, our forefathers suffered greatly for nothing more than believing exactly the same things that we believe and come in coming here and, and say we believe week after week. So in, in England and Scotland and other places, in in Europe at times, um, our Presbyterian and Reformed ancestors suffered intensely for no other reason than they believe the same things that we come into church and say we believe every. Sunday. It used to be that Christians, and I don't know, um, you know, your reading and what you've studied and and everything, but generally, it used to be that Christians paid more attention to this than we do now, I think. Um, If you go back to maybe my generation or a generation older, if, if you mentioned Fox's Book of Martyrs, Everyone in the, in the congregation would have known what you were talking about because if they hadn't read it, they would have at least heard of it. I'm not sure if that's true of the generation younger than ours. We don't, um, I think, uh, and again, I'm not talking about us individually. I think across the church generally. First of all, across the church generally, we don't care about history at all. If it happened more than two weeks before I was born, it's not important. But, but the other thing is, you know, there's this attitude now I fear that if it's not positive and happy, it's not good for faith. And in reality, the opposite uh, may be true, that if it's not worth dying for, it's not good for faith. And understanding that we believe in things, that because we believe in Christ, we believe things that uh, men and women before us thought were worth giving their lives up for, if not actually dying, um, suffering intensely. Um, I think that's something that should encourage us in our own faith, and it has motivated and and inspired uh, God's people over the centuries um, to be faithful, even in the midst of hardship. Now, another reason that we don't talk about um, persecution and affliction as much in our day is it's really not our own experience. For the last three centuries of American history, um, by and large, being a Christian is a respectable thing. It actually might even be a way of getting ahead. Um, there are political people that, you know, if it gets close to election time, they'll start attending the church of their choice because being associated with a church is a good thing, or they'll put on their legislative websites. I'm a member of such and so church because they want it known that they are um, Christians. And so, um, and and the same can be true in in workplaces and in our social environments and, and so forth being a Christian can be seen as a positive and has been for most of the last three centuries. And so there's been persecution sort of in isolation or, you know, maybe in a particular instance, somebody lost their job because somebody didn't like it. that their employee was a Christian or whatnot. It, it happens, but by and large over the last three centuries, being a Christian in the Western world or in the United States in particular has been something that's been respectable and your neighbors, even if they're not Christians, they probably think, well, he's a good guy. He lives like a Christian. Um, and so, um, it's not been something that we have suffered for. The question comes, is that changing or will that change in the near future? And I, you know, I don't want to be paranoid that you know, they're going to come and get us. Um, don't want to get a martyr's complex. But I think that we can see trends on the horizon that ought to be concerning uh, to us. That, um, that increasingly that we are hearing that if you believe certain things that Christians believe that you really are not somebody that's safe for public life or public service and um, there are two primary areas that this comes down to one is the matter of sexual ethics um, where if, uh, if you believe the wrong things about sexual ethics and sexual identity it's not just that you are different from me it's um, uh, you're a bigot and you may not be permitted to serve in public office or you probably shouldn't work someplace because it's just um, polite people don't believe those things. And so that's the one area. The the other area where um, we're seeing uh, pushback is in the, in the matter of the exclusivity of the Christian faith. What's the way to heaven through Christ's life, death, and resurrection? Well, what about, other, what about other ways to heaven? Aren't other ways? Christ's life, death, and resurrection and believing in him for eternal life, that's it. Well, you're saying that if somebody believes in another faith or has another religion or, or whatnot, that they, their sins can't, aren't forgiven? That's why Christ came and lived and died and rose again. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And more and more in our day, those are regarded as the words of a bigot. And the reason for that is, for most people, religion is regarded as a private thing And so whatever you believe in your own heart is good enough because God's in here. But as Christians, we don't believe that religion is a private thing. God is not. There's a sense in which God is in here, okay? But the God that's in here is also the God that's out there. He's the God that created everything. And when Christ died on the cross, he didn't die in my heart. He died on a hillside um, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And when he rose again, a real physical body got up and walked out of a grave. It's not a private thing. It's a public thing that everybody can examine and decide whether they believe it. And so that puts us out of step with the way most people nowadays, or a lot of people nowadays, look at religion, which is mostly psychological. Um, do you believe in something that, is, that, that works for you? And if it works for you, who am I to judge? And so here, here just to give an example of where we are, in recent years, somebody that was um, very uh, well known for the difference that christ made in his life was the baseball player josh hamilton so supposing and this didn't happen but i'm going to create a a pretend event suppose josh hamilton went on oprah and said i was a helpless drug addict and you know found myself flat on my back in my grandmother's trailer without a penny to my name doped up everything and my grandmother taught me about faith in Christ and I've been now clean and have this different life, Jesus did that for me. The whole crowd cheers. If after that he says, I think everybody in this audience needs Jesus just like I did, the cheers go away. Because to say that that's meaningful for me, that's fine. But to claim that that's the need of everybody in our culture is becoming less fine. And um, I may be wrong. I don't, uh, I'm not a prophet and I don't have a crystal ball, which would be pagan anyway. But, um, but I think that we may be coming toward a day in which the hostility toward Christianity becomes worse. Um, for the reasons that I described and the church needs to be prepared for this. Um, I, I think that one of the strengths in the history of the OPC is that we regard ourselves as pilgrims and strangers in the midst of a hostile land. That's the history of the OPC. It's one of the reasons that I've ended up in this denomination. Um, we. Um, we're ambassadors, we're strangers and pilgrims, we're, we're like the Israelites in Babylon, or we're like Abraham in Canaan, among people that don't believe like we do. Um, if, we, if we have that mindset, it will help us. If we have the mindset that, um, that um, we're going to uh, triumph in every, every trial, um, we may not do as well. So anyway, I've said a lot in the last 10 minutes. Uh, any comments or thoughts that you have? I think one thought is we have to, when we talk about equipping the church, we have to equip the next generation, the covenantal generation, to face this. Because most likely, you know, John and I won't necessarily face the hardships that our sons will, or that their children will. Um, <clears throat> That, I mean, I think that's one of my thoughts. Like when you were talking about George, George Fox's Book of Martyrs, I was like, do my kids really know what that is? I mean, we talk about martyrs, I've used the library, we've, but I don't know that they would know that there's a collection of Christian martyrs who are our fathers of the faith that, and our friends, you know, who are the joy and glory. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know. So. Great I read. thoughts. And even though I've taught it, I'm not sure that... I think Lynette's taught ethan from that book but i don't know for sure so it's i'm i'm guilty your teacher's a hypocrite (laughs) this is being recorded isn't it okay (laughs) other thoughts questions Yeah. And I think Thessalonica would have been a lot like Athens because it was also a commercial city and a port. So yeah, in, in many ways, very much a melting pot. So yeah, that was an aspect of their culture. Um, but even at that kind of a dominant culture will emerge. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because in, and we'll get into more of this in coming weeks, but in so many ways, these great Roman cities were like, um, our experience nowadays. Um, uh um, in, in a, a melting pot in which cultures are being mixed um, the uh the issue of sexual ethics that I mentioned and Paul will talk about this more in the next chapter which i 'm really looking forward to. <laughs> Did you sense my sarcasm <laughs> um, anyway um the 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 church was ever, was Completely out of step with the culture around them on sexual ethics, you know sometimes we get the idea that we 're the first generation of Christians that have to to be out of step with the world around us, um, but um, the the first century church experienced exactly the same thing um, in terms of the um, of the uh, mixture of various religious groups and the hostility toward Christian exclusivity. Um, They experienced exactly the same thing because in a melting pot, the expectation was that you would would accept everybody else's religion. And and when they said, no, if you're another religion, you need Christ, um, that wasn't wasn't, uh, polite. So um, their culture was in so many ways similar to the direction our culture is moving, and so there, there are great lessons that we can that we can have here. I don't know if you were going a different direction from that, but others. So Paul again, uh, the the other thing that we can say about this is that um, Paul telling them that in coming to faith that they were going to experience affliction um, is once again a reminder of what we know. But there's this constant tug in our uh, religious culture in our country, uh, in our Christian religious culture. This is a direct repudiation of the prosperity gospel. You know, Paul didn't say, come to Christ and get rich. Come to Christ and get whatever your heart desires. He said, come to Christ and you're going to suffer. Um, and and by the way, I keep taking detours myself, um, there are There are Christians that have preached this in our day i it, it's still even though I heard this thirty years ago it 's still very vivid to me a uh, a Baptist pastor from Romania that was in the United States because under um, communist rule under CSQ, he got kicked out but he got kicked out after um, uh, they they actually his church in um in Romania had grown dramatically because they started preaching. If you come to Christ, you're going to suffer. Make no mistake. You might be a university professor, but if you come to faith in Christ, they'll fire you and offer you a job as the janitor. You're not going you you're not going to be thrown in prison or die, but you're not going to be able to work according to your interests and qualifications. And so And he said when they started preaching that if you come to Christ, you're going to suffer, that the church just exploded in growth. Um, And and people were coming to faith left and right. He was arrested, and they threatened to, um, to kill him. And he said that he told the authorities, you're not going to kill me. And they said, well, how dare you talk to us like this? And we will kill you. And he said, no, if you kill me, he said, my tapes and my pamphlets and my books are all over the country. If you kill me, you sprinkle them with the blood of a martyr. You won't do it. And they didn't, but they did throw him out of the country. Um, and he went back after the, after, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, Paul closes with um, another mention of the return of Christ in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so um, we've noted that at the end of every chapter, there's a reference to the return of Christ. And notice how these are not t- tagons, as though the, the second coming is something to to think about by itself as a different category, but rather these are integral to the way they think about their lives as believers in Christ. And so um, at the end of chapter one, there is hope because they're assured of deliverance from wrath. At the end of chapter two, there is hope associated with joy. And then at the end of chapter three, there is this emphasis on, the completion of their sanctification and thinking about that in terms of the second coming. And so this is probably something that we should explore further and we will try to, but the, the uh, return of Christ and thinking about that is integral to the way that we think about our Christian lives. And that's one of the reasons that um, the people that get the second coming wrong get a lot of other things wrong most of the time. And um, it's, the reason why we also should not neglect the uh, correct doctrines related to the second coming because it will help us in so many other ways with regard to our faith. Let's pray. I'm over. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that, um, that we would benefit from this study and that you would prepare us and help us to prepare um, our covenant children um, for the possibility that we would suffer. Uh, because we are believers in you. Thank you for the joy of believing in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.